An important verse related to Bible prophecy and the end times is 1 John 4, 3, which says that every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof you have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. Please note, and I checked this in the Bible lexicon, the original Greek text in the King James Bible says Jesus Christ in this verse, giving both Jesus' name and his title, Christ, meaning Messiah in Hebrew, Mashiach. However, most modern translations erroneously omit the Lord's title, even though Christ exists in the original text. That's dishonest. But that's the spirit of this age, treating Jesus merely as a man, not giving him his full title and honor as God's Messiah. And that's the spirit of Antichrist, which usurps the position of the Son of God. The Jerusalem Channel is made with the support of you, our viewers. Thank you for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dark. The reason Satan and unbelievers don't want to declare that Jesus the Christ, God's anointed Messiah, has come is that Satan has always wanted to substitute himself in the place of God. So to downgrade Jesus, Satan must push the narrative that Jesus is just a man, not God's anointed one, God's King Messiah. You see, the powers of darkness are planning to set up the Antichrist world ruler through whom Satan will be worshipped. Anti means to be a substitute for or in the place of the Messiah. So the Lord's title, Christ, Mashiach, must be removed. The Apostle John also wrote that the spirit of the Antichrist was already in the world 1900 years ago. And there's been plenty of time to try to convince the world that Jesus is not the Christ. The Apostle John knew that Satan's goal is to eliminate Christ. And believe it or not, according to the One Path research, there are over 450 modern translations of the New Testament. And most of these translations erroneously remove the title Christ from 1 John 4.3. But beware of such translations. Eliminating the Lord's title is the spirit of the Antichrist. In fact, Many false narratives are resulting in great end-time moral confusion. We're literally living in the verses of Psalm 2, which describes conspiracies of the nations against God and against His anointed Messiah, whom God has installed on His holy hill of Zion. One of my mentors in prayer and intercession, Lance Lambert of Blessed Memory, could hardly preach without mentioning Psalm 2 because it's so relevant to our day. Psalm 2 states that the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, literally in Hebrew, they're against his Mashiach, his Messiah, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But from his throne in heaven, the Lord laughs and holds these rebels in derision. 
The psalm describes the universality of the rebellion of Messiah's subjects as well as their folly because their mutiny results in the wrath of God. And in spite of all opposition, the anointed one will be enthroned. The seat of Christ's throne is called my holy hill of Zion, an allusion to Jerusalem and the city of David. Christ is the son of David, and hence David's throne is the type of Messiah's throne. Although Jesus is presently reigning in heaven, where he is our prophet, priest, and king, but soon he will return to rule from God's holy hill for a thousand years, known in Bible parlance as the millennium. As the return of the Lord draws nearer, the Psalm 2 controversy over God's holy hill is heating up. Recently, a member of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament, M.K. Amit Halevi, made news headlines by proposing a plan to divide the Temple Mount equally between Jews and Muslims. Halevi is a member of the Prime Minister's Likud party. It's his argument that the Muslims do not have the authority to turn the entire Temple Mount into a Muslim enclave inside of a Jewish state, especially since the Temple Mount is Judaism's most holy site. Halevi suggests removing Jordan from being the custodian of the holy site. Jordan signed a peace treaty with Israel in 1994, stating that Israel commits to respect the present special role of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan in Muslim holy shrines in Jerusalem. And in 2013, an agreement between Jordan and the Palestinian Authority recognized Jordan's role in both Jerusalem's Muslim and Christian holy sites. In 2016, Jordan's Kim Abdullah participated in funding the renovation of the tomb in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. An independent report estimates, according to Wikipedia, the total amount is over $1 billion that the Jordanians have spent since 1924 on administering and renovating the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Meanwhile, Halevi's controversial proposal of partitioning the Temple Mount accurately describes where Bible prophecy is headed. As I've often said, all eyes will continue to be on the Temple Mount because it's the most controversial and disputed territory in the world. And it just happens to be the place where, according to Psalm 2, Jesus will set up his global government of righteousness. Today, Muslims call the entire Temple Mount the Haram al-Sharif, meaning the noble sanctuary. But according to Halevi, and also according to a 1927 Muslim pamphlet, the mount actually first belonged to the Jews because the temple was built by King Solomon, located there, as well as the second temple, which was built after the Jews' Babylonian captivity. Halevi decried the fact that this most sacred place to the Jews has ironically become Judenrein, a term used during the Holocaust to designate an area forbidden to Jews. Intermittent violence at the Temple Mount evolves into diplomatic disputes between Israel and Jordan from time to time. And presently, the Israeli government aims to limit Jewish presence and activities on the Temple Mount. Yet Halevi and other activists point out that the entire mountain is sacred to the Jews. He stated, this is the place of the first temple 
and the place of the second temple built by the Jews returning from Babylonia. We're not breaking into anything. King David purchased the land from the Jebusites. But he said, today Arabs play soccer in the compound and hold picnics. He said, there are already mosques in the south of the mountain, and we respect that. He said, they can pray there and give us our share. And Halevi added, if the Muslims want to come and pray with us in front of the place where the temple stood, they are welcome. He quoted the book of Isaiah, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Today, Jews and tourists are only permitted to enter the Temple Mount through one gate and only during the few hours when the gate is open during the day. Halevi demands that Jews be allowed to enter through all the other gates, just like the Muslims. He maintains that Jews must be allowed to go to the Temple Mount without police supervision. And he asked, why did this happen in the first place? Because he says after the Six-Day War in 1967, when Israel regained the territory, the Israelis did not insist on the right narrative that the Temple Mount historically belongs to them. Well, in my decades of reporting on the nation of Israel, I've noticed that just as the prophets predicted the Jewish people would first return as refugees to a secular state, the prophets also predict that God will become increasingly relevant once again in Israeli society. All of Israel will return to the Almighty, especially the Bible predicts after the future war of Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. Meanwhile, the Temple Mount is becoming increasingly important to the average Israeli and Israel's relationship with God is becoming of the utmost importance to many Israelis. Halevi believes that Israel must firmly say to Muslims, you have the Al-Aqsa Mosque, but you can't have it all. You can't paint the whole mountain a Muslim color, but he's willing to share the territory. And Bible prophecy predicts that the voices of activists will continue to multiply until a policy shift is adopted in some sort of agreement and according to Bible prophecy, specifically Daniel 9.27, the eventual agreement will involve a covenant with the Antichrist himself, but the covenant will be broken. The fact that pressure for Jewish presence on the Temple Mount grows just indicates how close we are to the time of the Great Tribulation when these matters will come to a climax prior to the second coming of Jesus. The continuing controversy over the Temple Mount is an example of how many people today are confused about issues which are seriously black and white as far as the Bible is concerned. Today, routinely evil is being called good and good evil. A boy is called a girl and a girl is called a boy. And biblical issues about the rebirth of the state of Israel and the ownership of Zion's holy hill should be straightforward, but unfortunately, most people are still biblically illiterate. Our times call for clarity and truth taught in this Bible to avoid confusion. The Bible warns us to be circumspect and not to think that we are impervious to error. So in my Bible reading one recent morning, I was appalled all over again at how the man of God, best known for his wisdom, fell deeply into sin and away from God. And I'm referring to whom? 
King Solomon, of course. Solomon became so famous for his wisdom and riches that the Queen of Sheba heard about his fame and his relationship to the Lord. And she came to Jerusalem to test Solomon with hard questions. Indeed, she concluded, not even half was told me in wisdom and wealth you have far exceeded the report I heard. Yet later, Solomon wrote one of the most cynical books in the Bible, Ecclesiastes, after he apostatized and fell into compromise and idolatry by marrying pagan wives, beginning with the Egyptian daughter of Pharaoh. Think about this. God had appeared twice to Solomon. Solomon had built the first temple for God's very presence, and he ruled over all of Israel with unprecedented prosperity. But his Achilles heel was foreign women. Have you identified your Achilles heel? That sin that so easily can beset or overtake you? Well, Solomon fell into gross idolatry because of the influence of his pagan wives. And in these increasingly perilous times, how can we keep ourselves from falling into sin like Solomon did? His story makes some believers wonder, will Solomon even be in heaven? I studied various Bible commentaries explaining that, of course, Solomon lived under the dispensation of the Hebrew Bible, and thus he couldn't have experienced being born again with the indwelling of the Holy Spirit because being saved and born again are New Testament doctrines. You see, one of the great mysteries of which New Testament believers are stewards is Christ in us, the hope of glory. So in this dispensation, believers are actually temples of the living God due to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But that was not the case during the age of the law. In those Bible days, the Holy Spirit came upon men and women to prophesy, but the Holy Spirit did not indwell them. But God loves Solomon. He appeared to him, as I said, twice. And 2 Samuel 12 says that God loved Solomon from his birth and gave him a second pet name, Jedediah, meaning beloved of the Lord. The giving of this name was a practical declaration by God to David that he did love Solomon and that the Lord had forgiven David for his previous adultery. And now God had blessed David's marriage with Bathsheba and their son Solomon. And God used Solomon to write three books of the Bible, Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. Yet tragically, Solomon also sinned greatly against the Lord when he married those pagan wives and he built pagan altars for them. And he even participated in pagan worship himself. As punishment, God said he would not immediately tear the kingdom from Solomon because God purposed to keep covenant with Solomon's father, David. The record of Solomon's sins, plus his dismal tone in Ecclesiastes, has led some Bible teachers to suggest that Solomon wasn't saved. Whenever believers stumble, they should confess their sins and receive God's promised cleansing, according to 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Most Bible scholars believe Solomon did repent of his idolatry, because they explain that Ecclesiastes looks back over his wasted years and finds no joy in them, only futility, vanity, and a chasing after the wind. 
However, in the end, Solomon learned his lesson the hard way and finished with this advice at the end of Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Now he wrote, here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. These words do sound like a man who has returned to the Lord. In spite of his wanderings and shockingly gross disobedience, Solomon was still God's man, and his writings clearly revealed a person with a personal relationship with God who had experienced the folly and heartbreak of backsliding. It's very important that we know exactly where we stand with God, that we examine ourselves whenever we partake of Holy Communion, and that we're sure we're walking closely with the Lord because the times are very challenging and the designated period of the Great Tribulation looms on the horizon. Most of the world seems to be sleepwalking into potentially tyrannical developments. At our recent annual prayer breakfast in Jerusalem, Former U.S. Congresswoman Michelle Bachman sounded the alarm about plans coming out of the World Health Organization, which is intent on establishing a platform for global governance through health care. And the pandemic has paved the way for health passports. Your papers, please, has become a cultural metaphor for life in a police state. Well, Michelle Bachman attended the World Health Assembly in Geneva, Switzerland, and observers like her are pointing out that plans are underway to centralize authority, not just for pandemics, but for any health crisis that will be centralized in the hands of unelected global officials. The World Health Organization's mandate would usurp the health care decisions of sovereign nations through a global pandemic treaty that officials are calling some sort of an accord. This treaty would amount to the creation of a platform for global governments in the guise of health care. Michelle Bachman warned that the decisions being made in Geneva are happening with surprisingly little alarm or fanfare. She said the World Health Organization intends to vote for a platform for global government and to give themselves the power that no one up to this point has ever exercised. She said their intention is surveillance over every citizen on earth, and they intend to control people through health care. Michelle said that we need our legislators to wake up, to hold hearings, and to review these World Health documents. And there are plenty of other developments that call for great discernment, the latest being that millions of persons may be lured into looking to artificial intelligence for spiritual guidance. That's how rapidly artificial intelligence is influencing the world. Artificial intelligence technology is advancing at an exponential rate. ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence chat box developed by OpenAI, capable of producing extremely sophisticated answers to very complex questions. Recently, as some sort of experiment, 300 persons attended a worship service at a Lutheran church in Germany that was led by a chat box and virtual persons. This is not the first church of artificial intelligence, but the concept is growing. The 40-minute church service included a sermon, 
prayers, and music created by ChatGPT. And a 29-year-old theologian philosopher from the University of Vienna who told the Associated Press that about 98% of the content came from the machine. Well, scientists say it's just a matter of time before entirely new religions are created by artificial intelligence. The World Economic Forum's historian Yuval Noah Harari has said that AI has crossed a new frontier by gaining mastery of our language and is now capable of shaping human culture. Harari is convinced that artificial intelligence will be used to write a new Bible because he said AI is more intelligent than humans and therefore godlike hyperintelligence will be worshipped. Therefore, the danger that artificial intelligence poses for our society cannot be overstated. In fact, recently a group of artificial intelligence scientists signed a statement warning about the risk of extinction from artificial intelligence. But their statement was almost entirely ignored by mainstream media. The statement was signed by a number of prominent AI scientists, and they said that mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other risks like pandemics and nuclear war. Pundits are saying we've reached an absolutely critical turning point in history, and humanity is rapidly running out of time. Some people believe that artificial intelligence will save us from ourselves, ushering in a new golden age of peace and prosperity. But others are entirely convinced that AI will greatly contribute to the fall of mankind. Now then, let's look at this headline from the UK's Guardian newspaper. Synthetic human embryos created in groundbreaking advance. Apparently, scientists have created synthetic human embryos using stem cells, a process that sidesteps the need for eggs or sperm. This news highlights how rapidly the science in this field has outpaced the law. And scientists in the UK and elsewhere are already moving to draw up voluntary guidelines to govern work on synthetic embryos because there are serious ethical and legal issues as the lab-grown entities fall outside of current legislation in the UK and most other countries. These synthetic embryos do not have a beating heart or the beginnings of a brain, but they include cells that would typically advance to form a placenta, a yolk sac, and the embryo itself. There is no near-term prospect of the synthetic embryos being used clinically. It would be illegal at this point to implant them in a patient's womb, and it's not yet clear whether these structures have the potential to continue to mature. But scientists could also sidestep with the creation of artificial wombs. A Cambridge team and a rival group at the Weizmann Institute in Israel have shown that stem cells from mice could be encouraged to self-assemble into early embryo-like structures with an intestinal tract, the beginnings of a brain, and a beating heart. So a race is underway to translate this work into human models, and several teams have been able to replicate the very earliest stages of development. 
I heard a transhumanist commentator say that there's no guarantee that these embryos will become normal humans, but they could very likely become very unnatural mutants. The commentator noted that just as there is an arms race in weapons, in science there's this feverish race to create these synthetic embryos as well as artificial wombs. Recently, researchers in China created synthetic embryos from monkey cells and implanted them into the wombs of adult monkeys, a few of which showed the initial signs of pregnancy, but none of which continued to develop beyond a few days. Scientists say it's not clear whether the barrier to more advanced development is merely technical or has a more fundamental biological cause. Some scientists say that this unknown potential makes the need for stronger legislation urgent. Well, as believers, we need to know that God and His Word are our authority for truth. Proverbs 29.2 declares, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. In the United States, for example, the Romans 13 divinely appointed governing authority is the Constitution and the Bill of Rights not leaders who may be immoral. We know the earth is ripe for judgment and the great tribulation is inevitable. God waits as long as possible to bring judgment because he's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So how should believers respond in this hour? I heard a man of God say that believers need to hustle for these last days. We need to occupy diligently in this world until Jesus returns. I believe God wants to have two things in mind. One is the doctrine of imminency because the return of Jesus is near. We must watch for him. But the other mindset is the perseverance of the saints. Let's keep saving souls. Let's not be discouraged by news headlines. And let's stay focused on the need for revival and the harvest. When the great evangelist Dwight L. Moody was asked what he would do if he knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, his answer came, I'd plant a tree today. Yes, God wants us to keep working until the Lord's return. Let the true believer go about planting and sowing God's seed and keeping busy doing God's work. And when the Lord returns, may he find us doing his will. In conclusion today, may we learn the lesson that nothing should be allowed to compete with the Lord's exalted position, and no one or no concept should ever be elevated above the Lord Jesus. I'm so grateful for the many lessons we can learn from the history of Israel, the lesson we learned today about King Solomon. The Bible teaches us things to avoid, the way to behave, the need to trust in this word, the importance to hold fast to the truth and how to be saved through the atoning blood of trusting in Yeshua. And we learn the blessings of guidance by the Holy Spirit. Amen. So if you have any questions or comments, feel free to share with me on social media. We also invite you to visit our website at exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our weekly email and watch all our videos 24-7. And don't forget, download our free Jerusalem Channel app, also offering our video library. And please subscribe to our Jerusalem Channel YouTube site and my Substack. Until next time, I'll always be contending for the faith 
and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dorick. Shalom and Maranatha.